morning, everyone, tuning in to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. I am so excited about this conversation. I am having a conversation with three trusted friends who are also teachers. Um, I have been for 20 years intentionally trying to learn how to be a multicultural change agent. I'm very interested in change. I'm very interested in our having a new narrative. I'm very interested in deep cultural changes so that we can alleviate the inequalities that absolutely kill. And we have been experiencing that during this pandemic and during this most recent police killing of an unarmed innocent man and the gunning down of a man in Brunswick, Georgia. So I wanted us as a community to begin to learn some of the skills that I've learned. And I am very honored and very excited to have Dr. Valerie Batts, who is the founding or co-founder of Visions, and she'll tell you what that's about. It's an organization that is a catalyst for change that brings about a more equitable world by recognizing differences and living with those differences. Uh, she has meant the world to me and I have been studying her model as an active student once a quarter for 20 years. And with her and with us in this conversation is a relatively new friend of mine, actually two, uh, Jabari Brown and Dr. Jeannie Firth. They are in a peer supervision group with me that is facilitated by Dr. Batts. And we get together in Atlanta and we go over the model, not in terms of a rote understanding of the points by point by point, but bringing up what's going on and what's alive in our lives, the challenges in our lives trying to be agents and participants of multicultural change. So that's who we have with us. And I would like, before I pose a question to them, uh, for them simply to say any other word of introduction of who they are and what they're about. And uh, then I'm gonna pose a question and we'll get started. So Dr. Batts, if you don't mind, welcome, welcome, welcome. Could you self-introduce yourself in any other way that you want to add? Sure. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Reverend Bacon. Call me Ed. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I am delighted to be in conversation with you this afternoon about this important topic. And you and I have been in many conversations about these topics over the over this 20 years in the forums, in, in several forums. So thank you for the for inviting me back. And thank you for continuing to chip away at this virus of racism. That, you know, we always have said in our model that race, that racism is, has an element at the cultural level that's like a germ, that we catch it without even knowing it. And I'll talk more about that. But I, I, I wanted to say by way of introduction, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina in the 50s and legalized segregation was the law of the land. So I know what that germ is in, in its, when it's, when it's activated, 
and I watched it become asymptomatic. And my graduate school work was about how do we address the unfinished agenda because just changing the laws will not justice make. And, our, and we started Visions as a way to work with organizations and individuals to understand the nuances of it and the complexity and the fact that the work has to happen at four levels, personal, interpersonal, institutional, and cultural. And when we started in 1984, most US citizens that we would talk to were like, we don't need that, we're beyond that. That was, now I look back, that was the, that was asymptomatic racism, that's what I'm calling it these days. These last, this last, this coronavirus has really helped me work on the analogy that it's been with us since 1619, since Europeans came to these shores and it's come out, manifested itself in lots of different ways. So I'm re-energized to get to a, to a, what, a vaccination, a vaccination, a cure for this virus. And it's gonna take structural work as well as deep spiritual work, personal work, et cetera. And I'm delighted to be thinking about that in partnership with people like Jabari and Jeannie because it's gonna take intergenerational work as well. We're gonna to need to all step up. When we started Visions, we were in our 30s and now we're in our 60s. And, we and, and it's just delightful for me to see that the journey continues. It's sad that you all have to continue this legacy, but a germ doesn't go away until you find a specific cure. So I'll stop there for now, but that's, that's who I am and how I came to this book. That was rich, rich, rich. I just love how you continue to um, evolve the, the, the vocabulary uh, mm. and this business of the germ and the virus and the needed vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, I want to unpack that as we continue our conversation. For sure, for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Jabari, let's shift to you. You and I have known one another for only two or three years. and. I am so excited about your leadership as a consultant and as, as an official trained consultant for Visions. So could you add anything else in terms of your own self-introduction? Yes, yeah, so thanks for that introduction. Um, again, my name is Jabari and I'm from uh, Georgia's sister state, one of Georgia's sister state, Mississippi. So. It feels as though we're two sisters' children in this way. Yes. <laughs> and the church, I'm really excited to be a part of this change with the church. And the church has been a place where I've seen uh, barriers crossed as it relates to oppression. And I've also seen ways in which the church has been the holder of oppression. So. I'm really excited to, again, be on this call with you all and, and just to have a conversation to share my point of view and to hear and see ways in which it continues to uh, reflect in the hearts of, of, of parishioners there at, at St. Luke. Thanks for, I, I love what you've just said. I've got to come back to that. That's rich stuff about crossing the barriers, the church, but also the both and of holding those barriers and being an instrument and a delivery system for the oppression. So we've got to hold both of those things as true. 
So Jeannie, it's really great to see you. This is such a surprise that you were able to jump on the uh, conversation today. Say a little bit more about you. Thank you. I'm really honored to be a part of this conversation. I'm feeling really humbled. Um, it is such a deep, hard work to do this work and such a joy. So I'm feeling both those things. Um, so I'm Jeannie Firth. Um, I'm actually, so I know Jabari and have worked with him in anti-racist work and anti-oppression work in the food system for over a decade. So we know each other from New Orleans in that context, but I'm actually home. I'm in my home place of being with my family of um, Swedish immigrants that farm on the Kansas prairie. So I'm here with my family. And um, I also grew up in the church. My dad's a United Church of Christ minister. So these are conversations that continue in my own family <laughs> about how our faith is a part of a more liberatory future and what that might look like. Um, but I'm, I really feel rooted in my work in visions because of the work Jabari and I did in New Orleans together of starting a food justice organization with teenagers in New Orleans called Grodat Youth Farm. And we got to use these visions tools in real time with young people and with staff. And we, our young people are very diverse from all different kinds of walks of life, as is our staff. Race, class, gender, sexuality, parts of town, immigration status. And so I think that the powerful part of Visions for me has been using it in this context in a living way, right? Every day. And now it has thoroughly infused my own life, <laughs> right? So it's living within the organization, but then living within me too. Wonderful. Happy Thanks. to be here. Thank you. And you've just finished a, some PhD work. I did. I just finished a PhD in geography at the London School of Economics. So I'm a geographer and I work on the same kind of things about equity um, in the food system. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Well, having been in the circle, <clears throat> the peer supervision circle with you and Jabari and with Valerie Batts, it has been every time a very spiritual experience. So I'm really, really grateful to be able to introduce you to this church that I love in, in downtown Atlanta. So, Here's my question that I think um, will be the question that we can address for the rest of our time together. Um, on one level, we have been in this crisis of inequity and inequality for a long time, for 400 years in this country. And we also have, since the murder of George Floyd been in a period, and actually Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia, a kind of a heightened sense of the awareness of crisis. To be sure, not new for people of color, but a lot of white people who live in white skin in America are really concerned and want to know what to do. So my answer in many, many ways always is, uh, let's get you some training, let's get some skills. And the four of us are really quite familiar with a model for multicultural change. And I would just like for each of you to take a turn and talk about what's been going on in your life. You can answer that on e any of the levels. If you want to go institutional, cultural, interpersonal, personal, that's your choice. And 
then follow that while you have the mic uh, to talk about what part of the what I keep calling the visions model and I'm, I'm everybody who's viewing I'm going to give you a way to get access to this visions model but what part of the visions model have you found yourself employing and relying on and thinking about a lot so Dr. Batts will you start yeah you're muted so unmute yourself thank you Thank you. So yes, um, I've been thinking a lot and 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 thinking about how to act on this thought, on this. One of the differences, distinctions that we made in our work is between old-fashioned isms and modern isms. And old-fashioned isms are the over the 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 over acceptance of differences as negative. So blacks are not as smart. Gay people are. Uh, Creating a sin, or, you know, being sinful, uh, etc. People who have fewer economic resources are not as smart. Southerners are not as smart as Northerners. I mean, all this, all the places where there's the one up, one down dynamic. People who practice old-fashioned racism believe that to be true, and they don't question that, and they act on that. And that was the, that was the working assumption. Of the European of the Europeans who came here and saw native people they, they, as as inferior breeds of Europeans. I, this was in some some of the narratives of the original folks who came here. They were de they defined native people as inferior breeds of of Europeans because they had straight hair like us, but they have brown skin like black people. So it's been a part of the mentality forever. So. So I've been thinking a lot about how that particular seed about black bodies being less than is, a, is at the core of this phenomenon that we're dealing with right now. So the society was structured in such a way that this reality is always an undercurrent. So when I was at uh, Duke University in, in the late 70s, there was a concept being studied called symbolic racism, which was saying, what happens when the laws change and it's not okay to practice old fashioned racism? What happened to it? Did it just disappear? So that's where modern racism came from, from, under, from realizing that there was a, that the, that the character of racism changed, but that the underlying dynamic didn't get confronted. So I've been thinking a lot about, as we think about moving what, what would be the strategy for change? How would we, first of all, acknowledge that that old fashioned racism is still alive and well in a lot of people. We said in our studies back then that 20% of white Americans were still harboring old fashioned racism. But that because the United States has this other side, which is you know, a belief in uh, fairness and justice, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, because we believe that also, we don't want to appear to be bad people. So if it, if racism is bad and my and my family is changing, then I have to whether I still feel that way or not, I'm gonna hide it. So that's what we saw. People went underground because it became unpopular, right? And we showed in our studies that if you are in a climate where it's, where there's ambiguity, the old-fashioned voices will will arise again. And so I always felt like as we were developing this work that there was, how do we address the 
that we can't act like that isn't there. And a lot of, we, we talked about a lot in the early days of black psychology that racism was a disease, that kind of racism, because it was, it was a distortion of thinking and of feeling. So if we think about racism as a disease, we could never, there was a push to try to get that declared a mental health issue. And of course, who controls that, right? right. So, it, it, so the structure doesn't allow, didn't allow for the correction of the problem. It just wanted to say, let's get, let's, let's outlaw it. But you can't outlaw a disease, as we are seeing with this pandemic, right? Yes. So, so I, I think that I've just been reflecting on the need, and and what we know from our psycholo psychology work is that you you can change. Mis emotional misinformation by correct, repeated corrective experiences. And since in the US, residential segregation really never got confronted. There has not been significant corrective experience happening among groups, both, I mean, so that it would mean every institution would have to have people with equitable power at every level so that there was continual interaction and 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 um, experience of the equity so that's what I remember when we when they desegregated my high school in, in, in the senior year and we went to the high to the white high school and and though we had had fewer resources it was so interesting to think after the first month by the end of the first month we we used to have those of us who we were supposed to be the smart kids we would say they ain't no smarter than we are <laughs> it's like, this whole myth, this myth was like blown or it was ridiculous. And, <laughs> you know, and that was at, you know, I don't know, 16 or something. So here we are. So that's, that's what I've been thinking a lot about. And also thinking about, and the, the, the fact that old fashioned racism also needs limits. And, and this current institutional, to go to the institutional level, the lack of limits in this whole process we are in now is is one of the you know critical factors instead of instead of building on the the benefits from the Obama administration around the pandemic around policing around changing the police the 21st century policing I mean there there, there were structural practices in place that need to be implemented the reparations bill that uh, Sheila Jackson Lee is pushing I mean they're just in that John Conyers pushed for 30 years there are just so many ways that we could be impacting policy to create the conditions for both healing and confrontation of the disease part of this that we're just not doing. And, and, if, we, and if we come out of this without addressing those structural issues, I think the US's promise will be, if not over, just uh, definitely delayed for generations. Thank you. Wow, so much. Um, and because I'm, I'm going to keep us rotating, I do want to come back to you, Valerie, and ask you again. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm really moved by the metaphor of the virus and the vaccine, mm -hmm. and to talk about what are the powers, the powerful vaccines that we know something about, if we could together learn them and implement them as a community for this structural change. So I want to come back to that. I'm going to bracket it right, right now. Yep. Okay, good. Okay. So Jabari, um, again, welcome. Um, you're in the thick of it as a visions consultant for multicultural change. What have you been thinking a lot about in terms of 
first, how's your life been? And what have you been thinking about from uh, the model that you've been using? It's a good question. What's been most present for me has been how I feel about the murder of black and brown bodies, and particularly the ones you named, uh, in addition to Breonna Taylor. Right. And as I reflect over my short life of 30 years, I realize that feelings are something that I have not been prepared to deal with. So like many of you, I've caught the message that I need to work hard in school and then I know as much as I can know and then I go to college, I learn even more things and then in college I get in a relationship, I marry that person and I move toward the American dream. Now change can happen by what I learn. Change can also happen by who I'm in relationship as Dr. Val was illuminating. Feelings, I feel and have been ill-prepared to deal with. However, that is, they are the things that are most present for me in this moment. Now, because I didn't have the tools or was ill-equipped to, to talk about my feelings and understand them, they showed up in ways that I were familiar with, but I didn't understand the root. You know, so, so this last week I felt very, um, I, I, was, I, wasn't, I was unable to focus. I was, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was tough to stay on track. Yep. I felt unmotivated. And so as I think about where those feelings come from and I sit for a moment, I realize that the invitation for myself in this moment is to return home. And that's the same invitation that I share with St. Luke today is to come home. And one of the first things I do on my way home is I stop by the mailbox. And in this meta metaphorical mailbox lives my feelings. Yeah. And so as I sit at the kitchen table or the couch, wherever it is, I unpack these, you know, uh, 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 feelings or letters from friends or bills, whatever they might be. That's where the work begins for me. And so again, as I begin to dig into these feelings that I was feeling or ways in which my body was showing discomfort, I realized that I was sad but it didn't appear to be sadness. I was sad because the very same things that my mother who was born in, you know, in the 1950s, the things she faced, seemingly they have not changed. And I'm also really angry for the same reason that things have not changed. And I know that things have not changed because of a lack of effort because, you know, as Dr. Val talked about the civil rights movement and many other movements that have 
Black, Black Lives Matter movement, things that have gone forward to continue to bring about a change. And so I realized that it's not just change within myself as I began to unpack these feelings that bring me discomfort, right? Like I don't just sit with them, I have to do something with them. Right. And so that has led me to be in relationship with other folks to sign petitions, right? I'm going to a rally as soon as I get off this call today. And I just wanna say that the, that the feelings we feel are gonna be different based on the skin we were born into. Right. Where I might feel sad and you might feel sad, Ed, but what we need to do is different based on the skin and bodies we were born into. Yes. Right, so my sadness says there's a loss and you maybe your sadness is also communicating that there's a loss, but for me the loss is the people that I've passed away, the, the access to humanity that I don't feel in this time as a person of color. And so the last thing I wanna share here before I pass it off to Jeannie is that there've been three occasions in my life where I have had a gun pulled on me and each time it was a white man, different ages, different different places in the South, in the North. And so this this idea of sadness to me says that at any moment that could have been me and so happened that it wasn't. But that doesn't mean that it won't be me next time. Right. And so again, this 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 idea of this 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 metaphor coming home can be seen in many different ways. Feeling wise, like literally coming home. And when I come home, what's in the mailbox for me? Where is my work? Where am I being invited to change? Whether that be learning different things, being in relationship with people. And again, most importantly, unpacking those messages that I've received and have taken as true around how I feel about people that are different than me. Thanks, Javari. I, I, um, I do want to in, uh, interject here that um, one of my goals uh, as the interim rector of this wonderful parish, um, along with, and I haven't been by myself, my colleagues, my staff colleagues, and the leadership of the church, been to try to provide a space that's safe for people to unpack what's in their mailbox. I love that mm -hmm. metaphor. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you open a letter, after you've been invited to open the letter in the safe space, the feelings in that letter are just overwhelming. I have been so heartbroken by adult African-American men who have been sharing how they have to wait until a certain amount of sun being up before they will go jogging in their neighborhood mm -hmm. because it's quote-unquote not wise to jog in the dark. And 
the number of mothers <clears throat> who are absolutely enraged and heartbroken and tired of being afraid for their black sons to leave the house or their black husbands to leave the house and not let that fear down and have some relief until they're back home safe because of what you described. So um, I don't pretend to understand those feelings from the inside out. I'm also aware of the people who are watching us have this conversation. And these kinds of conversations have been going on in our church and in Atlanta, and I think throughout the country. Um, so thank you very much for that really powerful metaphor and unpacking it. So we'll come back. Um, Jeannie, let's shift over to you. Here you are living in white skin in America. Can you talk a little bit about what the last week or two uh, have, what, what they've been like for you and, and what part of the visions model you've been calling on? Yes, thank you. Reverend Ed, even just in the examples that you were just sharing really made me think about how Dr. Val was sharing around the legacy of segregation in this country. So even though segregation is no longer legal, it was the law of the land, right? Legally segregated up until not too long ago and many lifetimes, all the elders who I'm around right now, right? But so even though segregation isn't legally ordained, that so many white people in this country, myself included, grow up in very homogenous white environments. And the examples that you were just giving were making me think that because of that segregation and a lack of content, so many white people actually are shocked to learn how afraid a black mother may be for her child's life. And that, that kind of reckoning of white people really realizing, wait, is that true for you? Is this really your experience? And, and I can relate to that in my own white family where because of a lack of contact, because of a lack of meaningful connection, and you know, not this tokenized, oh, I have one black friend, but like a deep meaningful engagement with understanding what lives are like outside of a white context, it's really hard to know and we see this sort of um, awakening, right? And I'm hearing from so many people in my white communities, both chosen family and given family, biological and otherwise, of white people saying kind of shocked, right? And this is not things that are shocking to most people of color in this country, but how could white people be shocked? If you grew up in a segregated environment like I did, a lot of it is really surprising and, and horrifying. So I something with the visions model that I've really been living into um, is around this interpersonal level work interpersonal level work, um, which is around addressing a type of avoidance of conflict. And this is really common in the way that we see modern oppression. The way modern racism plays out is an avoidance of contact. And so that could be, I went to a segregated school, I live in a segregated neighborhood, I just don't know many people who aren't like me, race, class, gender-wise, like I just don't know that many people. And one of the things I find so incredible and not in a great way, in a, in a really troubling way about this, is that um, so often modern racism persists 
when people still have good intentions, when people in power still have good intentions. So for example, maybe I don't go to a Black Lives Matter protest because I don't know if as a white person, if I'm supposed to be there or not. And so I don't want to offend anybody. And rather than asking questions and finding out more and, and trying to understand, is this a space for white allies? I just opt out, right? Because I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to be out of place. I, I don't want to offend. And so avoidance of contact and avoidance of getting into the messy work of this can so often be with a good intention. My intention is I don't want to cause more harm, but then I just stay in my comfort zone, right? My comfortable place of power of having white skin and not learning more and not trying to build solidarity and learn, right? Ask those questions. So a lot of my work right now is another kind of avoidance of, con of, avoidance of conflict. And another kind of avoidance of conflict is avoiding difficult conversations with other white people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That it's a big one. And I, I don't know what y'all's families are like, but in the family culture I grew up on, it's very much around, you know, we all have this joke about don't talk politics at Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? Like, don't, just don't bring it up. Right. And that, that culture pervades my family deeply around we just don't talk about the things that make us different. I mean, I have people of color, even in my own family, who just don't say anything. It's not a safe space to say things and to say something might cause conflict. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that I, with hopefully more grace and delicacy that I have now, but maybe given to me, you know, try to find ways to have these difficult conversations and in a way that is really um, from my own experience, using my own heart and my own experience and self-focus to really try to crack open the potential for more meaningful change. That's the goal. And I really think, you know, you, I, I've talked to Dr. Val about this, about not kind of getting stuck and trying to change somebody's mind, but really trying to invite people into a more beautiful future and what that might look like. And I don't have the answers for that yet but I know how easy it is for white people to just never talk about race, never talk about whiteness, never talk about white culture, is that a thing? Never talk about racism explicitly, or if it's talked about, it stays at this very um, kind of a intellectual level, very cognitive, very in the head, like we're gonna talk about policies or ideas, not about what lives in our own heart. And I'll tell you in my own personal work, until I am dealing with what is in my own heart, the things that I have been caught and taught about racism, I did not choose, but I live in this culture. It's in me. That stuff is in me. That racism is in me. And unless I really am willing to dig into it and invite other white people on that journey to say, let's look at this awful stuff. So I, I think in kind of the last thing I would want to say is I think so much about Wendell Berry's writing, this farmer poet, Wendell Berry, who's done a lot of work around race and whiteness. He's a white man in Kentucky, um, working with Bell Hooks, a black, incredible feminist scholar, also from Kentucky, ancestral mm -hmm. roots there. Mm -hmm. And their conversations, he talks about this as a hidden wound in the United States, a hidden wound, our, our racial discrimination um, that dates back from colonial settlement and has continued through enslavement um, into today. And I will just, I will say this because I'm on my family's land, my family's land that um, used to be probably Potawatomi people's land. Um, he talks, Wendell Berry writes about this way in which he can be in the place he loves more than any on this sacred hill on, on his family's property in Kentucky. 
and never feel more divided in himself than when he is at the most beautiful place he's ever been because he knows the bloodshed that his family enacted in that very space. And in the attempt to reconcile that unreconcilable thing around what it means to have white ancestry um, in this place with those histories, it is, I mean, it's sort of impossible work and it is my responsibility to, to do that work to sit on the most beautiful hill here in my family's land and also to realize that there is a legacy of violence that is part of my family's story. I mean, it breaks my heart, but it's to not not look at it. The challenge is to look at it for me. Thank you so much. That was really uh, moving. Um, so can we, uh, I just want to pause for a teaching moment and say that we have talked so far about the difference between old-fashioned racism and modern racism. We have talked about the feelings wheel, which is a part of, of Vision's training for us to get as skilled at looking at our feelings as being in our head. And we've talked about another part of the Vision's model, and that is this tendency to avoid contact and how that can perpetuate the polarization and divisiveness in our country and also not ever talking about the uncomfortable. And one of the things that we try to do at St. Luke's is talk about the big tent. And we cannot have a big tent that really has any meaning unless we are coming together and having conversations that are courageous and are not about avoiding contact and right now, I'm talking about the avoidance of contact between conservative and liberal white people, you know, but also the avoidance of contact between white people and people of color to really hear their stories of one another. So now that I've just filed those things, um, Dr. Valerie Batts, I, I know you've had some more thoughts and I would love for you, I don't, I don't need to be posing questions as much as saying, now what's going on in your reflections about this conversation so far? Well, one thing is that um, I appreciated what Jeannie was talking about with respect to the need to go back to, when, to, to how this all began. And that is work that white people need to do. We and we as people of color need to do. And many of us have done that, are doing that work as a way to, to a way to have resilience and define resilience even in difficult times. So the whole movement around Black is Proud and understanding ourselves as African, as, as descendants of Africa and seeing ourselves as cultural beings who are the, in many ways the soul of this country, built this country. All of that is, is part of, I think, what the change will look like is us undoing and recognizing the, the way it, I, I, we've been using the analogy enslaved people were the U.S.'s original oil. You know how oil is, and, and, and that is really, as we come to grips with that, reparative acts will become easy. But, but it's, it's accepting the fact that this country would not be here if it were not for the, the blood and sweat of our ancestors. So that's one thing that's coming to my mind, is just, it, it, it makes me um, joyful Jeannie, that you're representing a perspective that I think we need. 
And Jabari, you're being willing as a black man to know that your, your life depends upon your being in touch with your feelings and that this country tried to rob us of that. But that's the soul of, of a human being. Feelings, literally, every if people don't express their feelings, that there's all kind of evidence now that it connects to health issues and health challenges that people have. And we as black people have, in our culture, have so much permission to feel. So, and yet it's been pushed out of us for survival, right? You get too loud, you step out of place, all the things that we get taught about how to, how to not shine and not be the powerful people that we are for our survival. It's not done, it, you know, the intent is a positive, but the impact is negative. So I would, was thinking about that and about how that, all of that leads to illness. So racism literally kills. And it can be, and we were talking, I was talking in the beginning about these subtle asymptomatic ways. So not being able to express your rage there's a lot of work that says that a lot of the kill, the intra-group shootings and killings that go on among us as black people are about that. It's about, we turn it inward because it's safer than, than, than seeing that police officer. And when you see what happened, what's been happening, to, you see why, right? So I'm being moved to just to, to, to feel the, the, the power of being willing to say, I'm gonna speak my truth, I'm gonna feel my feelings, and I'm gonna have the support to do that. So that's why we speak, that's why we want to be in allyship with you all at St. Luke's and with any group that is willing to say, we will be, we will stand together and we will not let, you, you know, we will not let them kill us. They can kill us all, right? So, and you can kill the, the singer, you can kill the bird, but you can't kill the song. I mean, we will not, we will, that's what comes up for me is that the power of resilience, the power of overcoming is what, what we have now. And, and it is because we know the things that we've been talking about. We know that this is a, that every, that people are not born in it, that people are not born in this, but that there is a germ that we catch. And you talked about that, Tiffany, that we catch from the time we we're little. And that's what, you, as you know, a lot of our work is unpacking that. Where did I catch that? And how did I decide that I was not okay or that I was better than someone else? And how do I undo that at the very personal level? And that's our lifelong journey. And then that gives me the eyes and ears to challenge the institution. Amen. Yeah. Javari, I see you uh, nodding with affirmation. If you don't mind sharing some of your reflections about the conversation we've had so far. <clears throat> yeah. Val, I really appreciate that affirmation of um, being in this process of understanding my feelings and the messages that they're sending to me. <laughs> Even as you was talking, I realized how it rolled off my tongue with so much ease. And that's been years in the making of getting to that process of even identifying that I am angry and sharing that that is a feeling that I feel mm -hmm. because that's a threat to whiteness and I, mm -hmm. I don't know when I learned that but at a very young age mm -hmm. I knew that as a black man a darker skinned larger black man that it was a threat if I showed up as an angry person mm -hmm. and the thing that's in with me right now was shared with me from a, one of our colleagues 
Stella in a totally different context. And she said to me that, I just want you to know that your value isn't determined by the current situation. Mm. And it really caught me off guard to hear those words and to sit with those words because I think that there's a way that racism can become the problem of the very victims of the disease itself. Where we're being called to uh, ask to, to teach at liberty to white people what's wrong so that they are aware, right? And not necessarily to change, I want to highlight that difference clearly that it's different to be in a conversation in a relationship where change is, is, is the goal, but merely for sharing information, merely that's, that's, that's not the answer that causes me or one to relive the very trauma that racism is. And so in, in sharing my story earlier, I want St. Luke to know where I am specifically, and that I am only one piece of the pie of blackness in the United States. I don't represent all folks of color, but I'm just one of the stories that's out there. And I'm not defined by this current moment. My value isn't defined by that. Thanks. Jeannie, you- Another amen, another amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. Glory. Mm -hmm. So, Jeannie, I'm going to ask you the same question, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to finish it up. But what have been any additional thoughts or feelings you've been having as you've been here in this circle and you've heard Dr. Val and Jabari speak again? Mm. I'm filled with appreciation for all of you on the call and for the vulnerable vulnerability of sharing what you're sharing. Um, and I think it's an appreciation for the work that your congregation is willing to take on because it is needed work. Um, and I, I'm feeling that appreciation around this idea of, like if I could wish one thing for white people, right? Well, maybe two things for white people. You know, it would really be around this um, self-work, this personal work, and that bravery would really guide that. Um, because I think we've been taught so much on how to avoid it or to not see it. It's sort of this idea that privilege could be the wind at your back, right? Um, or that you just don't even know. And that's so much of my own journey has been trying to be brave. Um, and it, it is it is needed and it is demanded and it it is our responsibility. You know, I really feel that strongly. Um, and we can we can do better. You know, humans can do better. We I, I love that Dr. Val framed this all in that way. Like, this is, this is things that can be unlearned. Behaviors can change. You know, we really believe that. I mean, I feel the transformation in my own life. <laughs> so, you know, a deep belief that if we're brave and do this work in community with a lot of support, we can change. That is a wonderful uh, conviction. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's just let's just realize we're in a spiritual experience right now. That's it. Uh, we are having a spiritual experience. So, and change does happen at a spiritual dimension as well, right? Yes. You know, the feelings, uh, you know, I mean, 
Christians literally believe that when you are when you when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're born anew. So this ask around racism is even a spiritual request to see it differently as well. To to undo to undo this slaveholder Christianity. Right. Yeah, go right. back to the and, and get back to what the, the message of what Jesus and the other uh, folks were talking about when they were talking about undoing injustice. Yeah. Yeah. I have this group that meets on Zoom every Wednesday night to unpack either an article or something. Last night we were unpacking Otis Moss III's sermon about the cross and the lynching tree, the requiem for Ahmad Arbery. Mm. And he was talking, uh, I, I couldn't help myself but put up the picture that one of the slaveholder ships was named Jesus. It was a, a, a Christ, it was a distortion of Christianity that perpetuated this evil yeah. economy. Yeah. And we have yeah. to, we, you know, particularly we white Christians really have to come to terms with that and re-narrate right. the whole thing. Who is Jesus? That's why we've been studying Jesus and the disinherited. You know, by Dr. Mm -hmm. Thurman. Yeah. Yep. The lynching tree by James Cone. Yeah. yeah. We just have to learn the story and change the story's ending, change the story's trajectory. Um, Dr. Valerie, I'm I'm still holding on to this business of the virus and the vaccine. Yeah. So let me let, yeah. So let me let me because I'm working on a piece about this. Please. I've been thinking about how this notion of the asymptomatic coronavirus, right. that many people walk around with this virus and don't know it, but they're spreading it. And I, and I had always been using the analogy of racism at the cultural level as a germ that, ch that children catch from the time they're little. Right. And so it just, and that is the way a virus is. You don't do something to get a virus, it just jumps on you. So that's the where it started. And then the notion of it being asymptomatic is this distinction between modern and old fashioned. Old fashioned racism is symptomatic. You see it, you know it, you taste it. But then, but there, those of us, many of people who practice modernisms starting with the denial of difference, that I don't see difference. So if, if I don't see difference, that is an asymptomatic, there it is. That's, it's like a, it doesn't exist. But that means to me now asymptomatic. It's there, but I don't see it, and I don't have to see it. And the society is now structured so that if you, this whole thing of if you name race, you're being a racist. You know how many times in the workshops we hear that? Yes. That the asymptomatic. That to, to, I mean, it's it's insanity too. It's a you don't see what you see. <laughs> so no, it's it's many levels at which is a disease and a germ. I think, and I think that. The, 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 way, the important part is to know that in order to fix it, we have to acknowledge that we're all at risk for catching this, just like we're having to do about the coronavirus. So we have to wear our mask, right? So just the metaphor of learning training, learning skills, doing personal work, that's our mask, right? Organiz and, and so I think about how do we take, I wear my mask to take care of you, you wear your mask to take care of me. But if I feel like 
those black folks are just being bad, so therefore I'm not them. That's another example of the of the asymptomatic, because this will never end if we don't come to if we don't start recognizing our shared humanity. So the so the antidote of the virus, the, the you know the vaccine is is about that. It's how do we, as Jeannie had said earlier, how do we get to a point where we see each person as our as our sister and brother, you know, that we're our brother's keeper and all that. But so much of modern, of racism is also about excluding certain people. So they're not part of us. And so if I have that mentality, that's, an, that's a setup for an asymptomatic virus. Ooh. I should have been writing that down. <laughs> I was writing it down. This is video taped. So you get, I want this because I really am I'm writing this. I want to see how close this is, what I just said is, and what I had written. Absolutely. So I need to definitely, I would definitely like a copy of this set to make sure <laughs> I can do my next, so I can do this. Absolutely. Because I do think it's, a, it's something that can resonate because we, you know, we remember, Ed, we had a conversation right after the, what was the the killing where we did we were I was I spoke at the at the uh, forum it was, was after Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston was it yeah mm. yeah yep yeah. yeah. here we are again See, but I but I do have hope that I mean I just I got a copy of the twenty first century policing report that the, yeah. It's got so many exciting things. I mean, I, I, I'm just starting it, but there, you know, there is a, there is a bomb. There is a way out. We just got to be willing to use it. There's a bomb in Gilead. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. just that core difference between training police officers to be guardians instead of warriors. Yeah. Wow. What a mind-blowing thing. Talking about well, you, contaminated thinking. Well, do you know that, do you know one of the things that comes back to me when you say that is I had the honor and privilege of working with a group of 40 South African police officers in the first year after the, after the part, at the end of apartheid. And it was, they, they, because it had been so clear that the police were the instruments of the government, they could not move forward without changing their whole brand. So our work, they, we helped them create this idea of the South African police service, and we supported truth and reconciliation conversations between officers and the um, communities that, the community in the Cape Town area that we were working in. It was, it was life-changing because those men so, had underneath so much guilt and shame and remorse for the insanity that they had created. I mean, yeah. it, it was the sins that they had created. Yeah. And the, you know, and the loving, and you know, African people are so loving. I mean, they were so forgiving. It was, but they expressed. We pushed. We taught. We we taught them feelings as messengers, and we invited them to go go to their rage. Your rage is absolutely justifiable. So it was a really. That's again. That's how we. That's the process. Righteous anger is critical to this. To to getting to to undoing this. Yep. Well, my friends, I um, I always want to feel uncomfortable drawing a conversation to a close because it means it's been a really great conversation. <laughs> and we'll have to get back together. But for right now, I do want to say that there is a website, Visions, V-I-S-I-O-N-S, Inc., I-N-C, and it has 
and you can go into a lot of learning there and find out about your own skill building, as I like to put it, mm -hmm. through now virtual mm -hmm. classes. Mm -hmm. And it is so important. So uh, Visions, uh, thank you, uh, Jabari corrected, it's visions-inc.org. Yeah. That's the, the website. And then we'll get the link of this conversation and send it out to you all so that you can send it out to everyone. Um, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Appreciations. We like to always end our visions meeting with appreciations and regrets. So I really appreciate this time. I'm very moved by your friendships and your willingness to be um, vulnerable. I regret we have to end it today, but we won't end it forever.